Good afternoon. Today I have the lovely Brian with me. Hiya, Brian. Would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Hi, Donna. Yes, um, I'm Brian Price. I'm excited at the publication of my first novel, Fatal Trade, which comes out on Tuesday. But I'm also the author of Crime Writing, How to Write the Science, which is a book that helps uh, crime writers avoid some of the mistakes which hitherto have often cropped up. So I advise people personally. I've got a website which has uh, tips on things like poisons, firearms, knocking people out and body disposal, all the sort of wherewithal a crime writer needs, really. <laughs> well, have you always wanted to write? Um, I've always wanted to read. I remember starting my first crime reading was the Leslie Charteris Saint books, which I, I started when I was about 10. And I read a lot of crime and spy stuff. Um, switched a bit to fantasy in the late 60s when it was, was popular. Um, still reading the odd crime novel and then sort of coming back to it. But where I first started writing was in the environment field. I was involved with Friends of the Earth. Um, they wanted a short book on pollution and I was advising them on pollution at the time. So I produced a slim volume called The Friends of the Earth Guide to Pollution. Um, which was quite well received. Um, and a few years later, I wrote a, a book called C for Chemicals with a, a friend of mine, um, following on from a popular book, E for Additives. So it seemed like the sort of alphabet thing was working and followed it up with P for Pollution. Um, and those were, were popular books, you know, aimed at people who were interested but didn't have any particular expertise. I then became an environmental consultant and wrote a number of technical reports on things like biotechnology, energy from waste, um, coal combustion and stuff, but they were not the kind of things you'd find on a Smith's bookstore. They were um, limited circulation and so on. But it was, I suppose, getting involved with Crime Fest in 2016, I think. Um, I found that the, the crime writing community, instead of being sort of authors being up themselves, they were very welcoming and um, they were in the bar with Ian Rankin and so on. They weren't on pedestals and the like. I thought, well, you know, can I help with this? I hadn't thought at the time of writing a novel. And that's why I set up my website, uh, Crime Writer Science. And then my wife suggested turning it into a book. Well, all this contact with crime writers did make me want to start writing some fiction. I dabbled with a few short stories. Um, and the Crime Fiction Coach website group um, ran a competition for the best first no uh, sentence of a novel. I competed for that. I won um, some nice chocolates and a 3 a.m. notebook, which is an essential for any writer because those ideas that come to you in the middle of the night, you really have to write down because they're not there in the morning. Um, and somebody said that they couldn't wait to read the rest of the book. So I really didn't have much option. I had to write it, didn't I? <laughs> uh, so I, I set to work and did that. Um, passed it around various agents and publishers and was thrilled when Hobeck Books picked it up um, and felt it was worth publishing. And that's what's happening on Tuesday. I love Hobeck. Yeah, I love Hobeck. They're great. <laughs> mm, very nice company. <laughs> yeah. Um, how was it writing the fiction compared to writing the nonfiction? Well, it's very different. Um, with the science stuff, you, you write in a very linear manner. You, you take an idea or a concept or a piece of technology and you, you work through in a clear, you hope, manner so that people can understand it. 
you, you develop the principles, you explain stuff. Um, it's, it's pretty much a one-way thing and you do your research because the information is out there. It's just a question of organizing it and presenting it. Writing fiction is all coming from your head. I mean, obviously there are things, there are facts, there are facts about how poisons work and how police work and so on, which you've got to incorporate and get right, or at least approximately right. Um, but as to the plots, as to what people are going to do, you're inventing people, you're inventing things that happen. Um, and that was quite different. Uh, I'd never done that to any sort of extent before. Um, and it was quite a challenge, especially characters, because um, I don't know, I now know one or two through the internet, but I didn't know any police officers at the time. Um, I read lots of stuff and I watch lots of stuff on television, but quite a few of them bear very little resemblance to how the police really work. Um, and as I've said, with some of the, the, the science stuff, whether it's firearms or, or poisons or whatever, people often get things wrong. So I had to make sure I got those right. Um, but you know, how do you create a villain when you've not actually met any villains? You can't just transpose somebody from Goldfinger or a Peter James novel and use them. You've got to have your own villains and, and your, own, uh, your own goodies as well. So, uh, yes, it was quite a challenge. And did you enjoy the challenge, though? Yes, yes, I did. Um, it's, and it, obviously, it's hard work. It's not the kind of thing one knocks off in one's lunch break. Um, some people have the talent. I think Lee Child, um, when he was writing the Reacher books, he'd start in September, he'd sit down, he'd write and just deliver his manuscript when he'd finished and bang on deadline um, without having to do a lot of revisions and going back and editing and so on. Um, that didn't work with me <laughs> um, because you write something and then you see whether it works. And, and my wife is the person who's my first editor, if you like. She, she tells me if it's rubbish, she tells me if it's not working, as well as spotting you know, grammaticals and things like that. Um, so I then go back and redo things, um, emphasize some bits, delete some bits, uh, add a bit more here and there. Um, and at the end of the process, um, if I've got something which when I'm reading it, and I think, well, if someone else read it, I'd enjoy reading it. Uh, I think I've done something that works. Who was your favourite character that you wrote? Um, I think my favourite character is, is Mel Collins, the detective constable, who's um, the, the main protagonist. But, I mean, she does work with other people and they have their own quirks and their interests. And I also like, um, I mean, the, the, the novel starts, apart from a prologue, with uh, this uh, chap's head being found on, in a cardboard box on his ex-wife's doorstep. And her response is she tries to get the police interested and they say, oh, go home and take your medication, dear, thinking she's you know, not well. Um, so annoyed by this, she puts the box in a shopping trolley and carts it off to the police station, puts it on the counter and says, what are you useless buggers gonna do about this? Um, and I like that, that character. And then there are various other things happen to her and she, uh, she turns out to be quite a fun character to write. Um, so I like her. Um, and there's also the, there's a parallel thread between Mel investigating this, this gang that deals in drugs and also something else, which I won't tell you about because that would be a spoiler. Um, and the revenge to be wreaked by uh, a former sex worker in Glasgow who's found her way down to Mexton, my imaginary town via London tracking down the the man who trafficked her and she wreaks a revenge on him and so there's the thread about how she works her way into this organization and it 
all comes together in a, a denouement, in a, a shed in a remote bit of woodland. Um, so I'd like work the threads into that. And how did you find it choosing character names? Uh, well, the first one I chose for, for Mel Cotton, somebody already used, I think it was Mari Hanna used, I was going to call Mel Cooper, but I think it's Mari Hanna who has a Mel Cooper who's a male detective, so I thought well, I'd better change her name to Cotton. Uh, but what you do, it, I think, you know, I suppose most people do a due diligence check. Um, I had a, a corrupt police officer of a certain rank and ethnicity and used his name, and when I googled it, there was a far from corrupt, totally honest senior police officer of that rank and name. So I had to change his rank and name <laughs> just to make sure I didn't get either arrested or sued for libel. Um, so yeah, you, you check, you make sure that, I mean, I, I read so much crime fiction that I don't think I've copied anybody's characters, uh, character names, and if I have, I apologise. Uh, as for real people, I just make sure that um, I haven't used anybody who could be remotely mistaken for a character in the book or indeed the uh, the sleazy pub in the book. I make sure there isn't a, a sleazy pub called the Fife and Drum anywhere in England anyway. <laughs> um, so yeah, you've got to be careful. Um, and there's a, a crime fest in that you hear tales of people doing um, this sort of thing and perhaps mistaking it. I think Danielle Ramsey wrote a, a novel set in, I think, Scarborough where she referred to a nightclub and uh, the car somebody drove and some various activities going on. And this was her major villain. And she was contacted by the girlfriend of a very serious villain in that area who actually uh, was recognisable in the book. Um, so she had to make it clear that, you know, she really didn't want to end up with concrete boots or Scarborough Pier and that uh, it was purely fiction and that no slight was intended on this gentleman. Um, she's still alive, so I think that must have worked. Yeah, of course, yeah. You're the sort of people you want to be upsetting. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you can refer to the craze because they're dead, but any contemporary crooks you've got to be very careful about. Yeah. <laughs> um, without any spoilers, what was your favourite scene or chapter that you wrote and what was the most difficult? Uh, I think the denouement was a bit difficult. Um, I think for a couple of reasons. One of which is very many authors have their characters doing stupid things, you know, going off to interview a subject and leaving their phone in the car, not telling anybody where they've gone. Um, and the, the sort of problems ensue. Um, I had my characters doing something which you wouldn't, they might do, um, because given that preservation of life is the, the first priority of a police officer, uh, somebody does something involving looking to see if someone's still alive, basically, which has unfortunate consequences. And, and I had sort of had discussions about this. Um, how far can you have somebody doing something a bit impulsive, which, you know, if you stood back, do a risk assessment, waited for backup, waited for firearms unit waiting for this that and the other um you know, what might happen somebody might have died on the spot so you, you that there was that um the other part of the, the, the new what was fine i i had um zoe sharp who writes these brilliant charlie fox thrillers uh help me with the, a firearms incident and, and how something might ricochet so that that worked okay so that that was one of the most tricky bits 
Um, I liked the scene where the, the Martina, the, the, the woman seeking revenge, um, gets away from Glasgow. And I did enjoy the, the starting bit, the, um, the scene with, with Ellen and the, the, her husband's head. You, you probably gather that didn't, she didn't like her husband very much. He deserted her. So she was uh, a paramedic as well. So she's used to sort of fairly gruesome scenes, especially if she attended uh, road traffic collisions. Um, so I like that bit, and, and a lot of people like that. And people say you know, they were hooked from that page onwards and couldn't stop reading, which is a nice compliment. It means it's working. <laughs> yeah, a, a lot of people say that crime fiction writers must be weird, but I think the readers are weirder, generally. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Because we like reading about all this weird stuff that you write, and we want more. So, yeah, I think we're, we're weirder. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I think some of the psychological novels I, I, I've come across, and I, I tend to err on the side of sort of police procedurals and um, sort of things that Mike Craven and Paul Finch and David Mark and that write, um, because of their... Okay, they, they, some of those authors, and Mike Craven doesn't, he does an awful lot of research, but some take liberties with anaesthetics and so on. Um, but again, I, I helped out both uh, David and, and Mike with technical stuff. Um, but they're, they're sort of, there's psychology in there, but I'm not a psychologist. I, I wouldn't be able to write, I don't think, a credible psychological novel where you have um, somebody abused in, in childhood and, and seeking revenge on all sorts of people. I mean, yeah, I'm, there are things which happen in people's childhood they would want to seek revenge on, but actually working my mind into that sort of person's psyche um, and then looking at the ramifications about how they act with other people who might be equally damaged in, in one way or the other, I'd find that much more of a challenge than um, having the police work out why someone's head is on a doorstep or somebody actually saying, right, I'm going to get that person and this is how I'm going to do it via this method and this method and that method. Um, so I, you know, maybe I'm wandering off the point, but seriously disturbed people with, with mental illnesses, which um, I really don't want to make light of. That's another thing. I wouldn't want to exploit some of that. Um, it's not the kind of thing I could write. I mean, I've read some. I've, I've read some very gripping uh, novels like that. There's a, a Lisa Jewell one, which I read, which is very good. Um, I used to read Jonathan Kellerman's uh, novels back in the sort of 80s, 80s, 90s. Um, I found the last couple I read just a bit too unnecessarily bloody, maybe. I don't know. Um, so, yeah, I, I haven't read any of his for a while. I, and they are good. I mean, he's a very good writer. His craft is terrific. Um, so, yeah, that's not the kind of area. That's the kind of weirdness I'm, I'm not really competent to write. But I can certainly write about someone who tortures people. Well... I don't go into a lot of details, but one of the characters in the book is, is known for torturing his, his enemies. I don't say exactly what he does, but it's implied, um, which in some respects is possibly more powerful. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> What's the most interesting thing you found out uh, when doing your own research for your book? Um, one, I think it was part of the research for the crime science book, is that half the people can't smell, half the population can't smell bitter almonds in hydrogen cyanide. Um, I mean, one, one of the cliches of 
um, some crime fiction. I mean, Agatha Christie tended to get things right, but people followed on for her and, and, and twisted things a bit. Someone falls dead from swallowing potassium cyanide five seconds after drinking a glass of champagne with a, a chunk of KCN in it. Um, and then somebody goes over and says, ah, that's cyanide, bitter almonds. Well, there's a couple of things wrong with that. Um, generally, it takes 10 or 15 minutes for it to kill you because it's going to be absorbed in the through the stomach. Um, although there are some circumstances where you can get vapors coming up and be inhaled. Um, but if someone's been poisoned with cyanide, they're actually breathing the stuff out. It's not a very clever idea to go and take a hearty sniff of it. Uh, when post, when uh, pathologists do a post-mortem of someone who's suspected of taking a large dose of cyanide, they do it in a very special room with fume extraction and a respirator because they don't want to go the same way as the, the person on the table. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> the, the point is that half the population can't detect bitter almonds when they smell cyanide anyway, so that's, that's probably the most unusual thing I've found out. But there are, there are other things which you sort of take for granted, um, especially on the science side, and you quickly find out that they're wrong. Um, for instance, most revolvers don't have a safety catch. Um, there are a few models which do, but generally they rely on the fact it's a long pull and you maybe have to pull the hammer back before it will fire. Um, and the, the Glock semi-automatics, which are, are ubiquitous in crime fiction and in the holsters of police officers, um, they don't generally have a safety catch either. Um, so you, I see a lot of authors saying, you know, he slipped the safety catch off his lock and entered the room. Well, no, he wouldn't. <laughs> there isn't one. Um, my my favourite bugbear, I suppose, <coughs> excuse me, is chloroform. Um, it's a, a trope from crime fiction in the 1920s onwards, I think, that somebody comes up with a pad of chloroform, a pad of cloth with chloroform on it, shoves it over someone's face, and they're instantly unconscious for the next hour or so. It doesn't work. Um, to anaesthetize somebody with chloroform um, for surgery, they had a special machine which give, delivers the right amount of chloroform and oxygen. Um, it takes 15 minutes to get them fully under. And when you stop administering the, the chloroform, then they wake up you know, very shortly afterwards. Um, Linda Stratman has written an excellent book on chloroform called The Search of Oblivion, and that's well worth looking at. But, um, you know, there, there are so many people who still make these mistakes on TV and elsewhere. Yeah, I'm breathing a, a, a gulp of chloroform will make you dizzy um, and disoriented in time for someone to bang you on the head, maybe. Um, but if it was that easy, I'd have been on the floor of the lab many a time when I was using the stuff. <laughs> So um, the question I was going to ask you, actually, um, uh, can you read and sort of try and ignore the the mistakes or do you just notice them? I think it depends on how good the book it is. I mean, I read, I got picked up a proof at Harring, uh, Harrogate, I think, of a novel by somebody who was writing about an artist involving work um, murders. And she used chloroform in that, um, one of which she was chloroforming a rabbit, uh, the, the artist was, so that she could um, do a painting of it, I think, a painting or sculpture, I can't remember which. And I, I was suspicious about that. And I had a word with our vet and she said, no, don't do that, and kill it. <laughs> um, and the other one is she talked about someone having been injected with chloroform to, to kill them. Well, that would be excruciatingly painful. Um, 
and you know who's going to sit still while somebody pumps 10 mils of chloroform into your vein uh, so yeah that that made me annoyed um, okay it was proof copy and maybe things were improved in the final one um, but i mean th there are things you draw a veil over um, because the rest of it is so damn good um, i think say line of duty which is is a stunningly good drama but they do a few silly things with firearms um, in one episode somebody gets shot through a well, you've got a guy with a pistol hold to someone's head uh, behind a glass door. And uh, a police officer who wouldn't already be carrying a firearm anyway, um, shoots him through the glass door, hits the villain, but not the person who's got the pistol against his head. Well, if you fire through a piece of glass, anybody behind it is going to get covered in bits of glass, which is not good for your health. Um, and secondly, the bullet could go almost anywhere. So that was just silly. But you know, having said that, the, the series is so excellent. I still watch it and um, draw a veil over some of the mistakes like that. <laughs> the same with the killing, you know, the, the, um, no, the killing, the bridge, beg your pardon. Um, there were a few technical mistakes in that. But again, if you, if you watch the acting and the plots in that, never mind a few mistakes. It's just so entertaining. Um, if you were to team up your main detective with another um, crime fiction detective, who would you like them to team up with? Oh, um, I don't know. I mean, you've got you've got teams who are almost inseparable. You wouldn't separate Poe and Tilly in Mike Craven's books. They were they would you know they work together. They wouldn't do that. Um, I think possibly Mel. Cotton with uh, Meeve Kerrigan in Jay's, Jane Casey's excellent books, because they're both um, competent, um, clever, brave women who just not going to take rubbish from anybody. Um, so they might work together. I don't think there'd be a lot of particular friction there. Um, Maybe Roy Grace, um, because Grace is is good at encouraging other people's uh, contributions and their, their work like that. Um, so I think they they could possibly work well together. She's a bit impulsive, but you know she would she would follow his orders, but by and large, I think. So maybe that would work. I hadn't really thought of that before. <laughs> And if you were to be a character in any of the books, who would you be? And would you be a victim or would you be a copper? I'd probably be one of the um, sort of backroom people, um, somebody doing something technical, um, maybe a, 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 a socko, um, because I've got a very good, I'm very good at finding things. If we've dropped anything, whether it's a bit of jewelry or a nut and bolt, I'm pretty good at finding things. So I'd be quite meticulous at a crime scene. So I could be one of those. I mean, Kate Benelow's just written a, an excellent book on uh, a socko, maybe her character there, um, or one of the, the people behind the scenes doing computer stuff. I probably wouldn't be that good as a straightforward detective in terms of interviewing people, because I always think the best of people, I'd be far too gullible. <laughs> um, so they, they'd probably pull the all over my eyes. And the, if you look at the skills of, of the way people interview, um, you can see it on the, the um, true life crime stuff like 24 hours in police custody, um, then that would you know, I, I would not be particularly good at that, I don't think, because I would 
accept what people say too often. And that, that's something which I remember seeing in the Scott and Bailey TV series, the way they were interviewing people. It was far more realistic than cough you, scrow, or we'll bang you up kind of uh, old school police interrogation. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the, I, I think probably I'd be, I'd be the sort of person who digs around in, in files and maybe makes connections and so on, um, putting bit, random bits of information together to get a, a picture rather than um, out there on the streets kicking down doors. Right, that, that's cool. Then um, 24 hours in police custody set in my area. Ah, right, yes. There's, uh, there's some good stuff there. Yeah, um, the one with the, um, the young lads that stabbed each other and there was blood in the shopping centre. I was at work that day. Agreed. <laughs> Shocking stuff, yeah. Yeah, didn't, didn't really realise at first. Um, my young colleague... Um, I said, is there blood out the front? I said, no, don't be silly, of course it isn't. <laughs> yeah, from like one end of the shopping centre to halfway until they collapse. Oh, yeah. yeah, rubbish yeah, witness. Right. Yeah, right. Well, that, I mean, witness statements are notoriously unreliable. And look at that. I'm, I was just looking at the Crime Readers Association newsletter and someone's written a book on Hanratty, the Hanratty murder. Um, and for a long time, the journalist Ludovic Kennedy was trying to clear him because someone swore they'd seen him in a, I think in real or somewhere miles from the A6. Um, but when they did some DNA work, then yes, it was Hanratty and he was um, not wrongly convicted. Whether he should have been hanged is another debate, but um, he'd done it. But, and, and, you know, somebody was clearly wrong about the, the alibi. Um, so, yes, they're, they're often pretty unreliable yeah um yeah the police came up I'm like did you see anything but we've got people it's a shopping center people are coming and going all the time I saw people running and that's all I could tell them that was mm. I had nothing yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's annoying because I've studied forensics so I know how important it is but <laughs> like, yes, I've got nothing sorry yeah <laughs> And people were just walking over. They just stepped over the blood. Brilliant. <laughs> just like Barnaby in Midsummer Murders, cl clambering all over the crime scene. Yeah, they just, I don't, know, I don't know if they just don't care or just used to it. I don't know. It was a very weird, very weird yeah. day. Yeah. yeah. I love where I come from. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Um, totally distracted then. Um, uh, I guess from your sort of consultancy, you made lots of contacts, but have you subsequently made lots of friends through the authors that you've helped? Well, I think <laughs> online, I seem to have lots of friends. I mean, I, I know Mike Craven fairly well. Um, I helped him first time with um, working out whether a limb had been severed before or after death. And I did this sort of online and then I met him at Crimefest and, and we had a chat there and he actually checked it with one of the country's pathologists who said I got it right, which made me feel good. Um, so we've been in touch, you know, over the phone. So I guess over the, the internet. So I guess I'd call him a friend. Um, and I know Lee Russell pretty well. Um, so I've met her a few times and had a, gave her a hand or something. 
Um, so yeah, I've got lots of what you might call online friends and, and acquaintances. I work with um, Graham Bartlett and Kate Bendelow with these workshops, which um, we put on, I think, about twice a year. Um, they're one-day workshops for crime writers. Kate does the scene of crime stuff, Graham does the police procedure, and I do a se session on scientific errors that people might get wrong. You know. Um, so I know them pretty well. Um, again, online, I've never met these people. I was hoping to get up to um, Harrogate this year and, and actually meet some of these people. But unfortunately, my son, who's got learning disabilities and a heart problem, had a heart operation, uh, sorry, a heart investigation planned. And no way was I going to jeopardise that by catching COVID in the bar at Harrogate. So I had to cancel. And, but I'll be there next year, assuming it's happening. Um, and a crime fest. So it'll be nice to catch up with people in reality who I only know electronically. Yeah, I made it to Harrogate for the first time and it was awesome. I loved it. Yeah. I, yeah. I met Mike because I've interviewed him. Yeah. So I spoke to him briefly, but yeah, it was it was amazing. I loved it. I'm going to Bloody Scotland actually next weekend as well. Uh, yeah. It's a long, long way from Western Supermare. That's the trouble. It's a long way from Dunstable as well, especially when they have a strike on the train on the Sunday, so you can't get home. <laughs> oh, yeah, yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah, we'll worry about that next weekend. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's, only, it's only six hours or something. It's fine. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but it would be nice. Um, totally forgot. I keep getting distracted. It's terrible. <laughs> Um, do you get many uh, just general population of people contacting you or crime readers or anything? Um, not so much crime readers. I mean, I've, I've got my email out there and contact details on the website and people contact me via Messenger and, and Twitter and so on. Um, no, it's only been crime writers so far. I haven't had any dodgy character contact me saying, how do I commit the perfect murder or... I've got this body, I want to get rid of it. I've not had that kind of thing. Um, but I have had people ask about body disposal. Um, so yeah, quite a wide range of crime writers over the, the, uh, the years. I think for the first, actually the first time I ever did anything like this um, was for the BBC. Um, there's a guy called David Kane who writes uh, TV dramas. He's written some of the Taggart episodes and other sort of Scottish based things. And he wrote uh, a serial called Jute City um, back in the, that would have been in the early 90s, I think. Um, and I was an environmental consultant at the time and somebody who I knew meant who had some contacts in the media so that I might be able to help because the theme was toxic waste dumping in a quarry in Scotland. Um, so I met him and had lunch and, and agreed to help with the script. And uh, I ended up in the, the BBC headquarters in London uh, working out how to blow up a toxic waste tip, which was <laughs> quite fun, um, <laughs> talking to the special effects guys. But you know, I just did that as an environmental consultant. Um, but later on, you know, back in, in this century, um, I dropped Peter James an email because I, I read a sequence, a passage in one of his books, which I particularly liked. So a woman was being kept captive and really took the initiative to try and get out and not be sort of coward, but she, she you know, put the boot in as it were. And I, I thought that was good because you see far too many cases where 
Um, so one woman in particular, she's cowed and, and treated as an object. Well, this was, this was somebody with spirit, so I like that. And I said, yeah, I'd do this. I'm a scientist, everything I can do to help. And he came back and asked how to knock somebody out with ketamine, um, which turned up in Love You Dead, was it? I can't remember which one, because I'm, I'm not so good with his titles because they all got dead in them. And I can't remember which one is which. <laughs> but I got a credit in the back of the book for that. So um, that, that was that's the first thing I did. And I thought, well, yeah, maybe I could do more of this. <laughs> Um, what's been your favourite moment so far since you started writing? I think getting a, a, a offer of publication was was pretty exciting. <laughs> um, I mean, I was I was very pleased to see crime writing, how to write the science, come out. Um, but it was it's written as a, a book for crime writers and creative writing students, and um, it's not the kind of thing you'll see all over the place. And of course, with lockdown. Um, which happened shortly after it was published. Um, people weren't, reps weren't going into colleges, students weren't going into colleges and, and bookshops were, were closed. Um, so that wasn't as widespread as I thought, but I was very pleased with it. Um, but actually seeing Fatal Trade coming out um, and you know, people have been saying some very nice things about it online and um, the, the publisher has this advanced readers team who read it and they all liked it. Um, so that's that's very nice indeed to see that what you've done, you, you've crafted something which you think is okay. And people are saying really nice things about it. <laughs> and when you were editing, what was your most overused word or phrase that you had to keep getting rid of? Villain, I think. Um, <laughs> <laughs> have to find different words for villain. Um, <laughs> This does smack a bit of the sort of Sweeney in the 70s on the TV. But uh, yeah, you've got to be, got to try and do that. Uh, and I mean, language is a funny thing anyway, because you know, you've know got to try and keep up to date. I would be very hesitant writing about teenagers because their, their slang and ways of speaking seem to vary by the month. And you put somebody in and call them a skank in, in the book, by the time it's published, it's a completely different phrase. <laughs> it's a word for that. So I, I'd be a bit cautious about writing for teens. Um, especially when they're doing text speak and online abbreviations and so on. Um, some people do it well. Um, I do like Cara Hunter's books where she has a lot of emails and press reports interspersed with narrative. I think that works really well. And, um, you know, she obviously looks into how people speak online and when they send emails and posts on social media. Um, but I, I never keep up with a 14 year old, I'm sure. Yeah, I don't know what they're on about. No clue. I um, When I went to uni, I was a mature student and all my fellow students were 20. And in the group chat that we had, they were talking and I'm like, do you lot come with a translator? What on earth are you talking about? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> no clue. Yeah. I never did find out either, but I'm sure <laughs> it was young people's stuff that would... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, bless them. <laughs> um, do you have any fears or phobias and would you write about them? I don't have any phobias. I tend to be pretty much a rationalist, um, which does sort of maybe inhibit my imagination sometimes, so I have to work hard on that. Um, and you have fears about your children. Um, 
any parent would. Um, I think if I was working as a police officer, I'd find it very hard to work on child protection um, because I want to be thoroughly unprofessional and do unpleasant things to the perpetrators. Um, but I don't, I mean, the main fears of what might happen to your family, you know, wife and children. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think that would stop me writing about a family in peril, but that would be my, my main fears, I think. Apart from, of course, the general fear about the planet and the morons in charge of it in various countries, which I don't know if you do politics on this website, but maybe you better stay away from it. <laughs> Suffice yeah. it to say that I do, I do refer to some of the difficulties of policing in a, in a time of austerity. Yeah, um, it's something that I've found more personal since I've done my course and how I see how difficult it is because of, so yeah, <laughs> I get it. Mm, I, think, I think forensic mm. science is, is terribly underfunded. Um, I think... I'm not convinced that privatising it is a good idea. I know um, one of the country's leading forensic scientists thinks it's a good idea. Um, because Angela Gallup, I think it was. Uh, others are less than happy. I think when they dismantled some of the false forensic science labs, they lost a huge amount of expertise um, and a lot of records. I mean, you know, we, we solve cold cases and I came across one in our local paper um, last week or the week before, a cold case, a rape, which was solved by DNA 40 years after it happened. Um, and they got the guy, you know, the, the victim was, was long dead, but they got him. But you know, where is all this evidence? You know, has it been lost? Have the records gone? Um, it's a scandal if it's lost. Um, so yeah, I, I, it does worry me about the, the, the um, if someone gets away with a crime it's not going to be because the police aren't good enough it's because the forensic science has been underfunded to chase them um, which is a very sad reflection really yeah the um the three lecturer main lecturers i had at uni one was um an ex-drugs um forensic scientist one was an ex I think geneticist or she dealt with blood and DNA and the other one was an entomologist yeah. and I know entomologists are rare anyway but yeah. now she's working in a university in Luton so it's such a shame. Oh, there's I came across something in a forensic science bulletin there's a, a bullet uh, an issue of the journal Insect which has now been put free for people to get hold of on the internet looking at various aspects of forensic entomology, which looks quite a good read if you're into that. Yeah, that's what I've done my dissertation on. Ah, great. Oh, well, you probably know more than they do. Well, guaranteed. <laughs> it was interesting, though. They are interesting. I um, did have to do... A, I, I was an external examiner for an environmental science degree in uh, University of Gloucester, and they had to choose an ecosystem to describe... Um, how it's, you, know, you, get, you get a piece of land and different plants following what they call succession. Um, and somebody had some sort of contact with a forensic lab in Chepstow. And his dissertation was on the ecosystem of decomposing corpse. 
and it was absolutely fascinating how the various organisms move in and then are succeeded by others and so on. And it, it, it fitted perfectly the, the assignment criteria, but it just wasn't talking about, you know, 20 hectares of scrub. It was talking about something much smaller and it worked. Yeah, it is. Yeah, people just wouldn't have a clue, I don't think. It's gross, but it is really fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, if you were able to spend a day with any author, dead or alive, who would you like to spend a day with? Well, a day in the pub with Mike Craven would be pretty good. <laughs> but I tell you who would I, I would find fascinating to, to, to talk to, and that's R. Austin Freeman. He wrote the Dr. Thorndike stories back at the turn of the century, um, more or less a contemporary of, of Conan Doyle. Um, but he was doing, had a lot more science in them. And I remember reading them. I think I first read them when I was about 12 and came across a copy of the collected short stories in an antique shop where it was just propped up as a, you know, a prop on a bookcase. So I bought the book rather than the bookcase um, and really got into it again. And I collected all the, the um, other Thorndike novels and they are very good um, for their time, you know, when a lot of things were just evolving, but he had his technician in his lab and, you know, he wasn't doing sort of 87 types of tobacco ash, he was doing much more credible things. And as a character, I think I preferred him to Sherlock Holmes. And I like Sherlock Holmes, obviously, but um, I'm having a chat with our Austin Freeman about how he got some of his plots and ideas, that would be quite interesting. So that's the dead one, but the alive one, you know, <laughs> there are plenty I'd love to have a chat with. <laughs> and who would be one that you'd be most overawed to meet? I don't know. Um, I mean, I suppose if you look at someone with the, the track record or someone like Ian Rankin, but you know, he's a nice guy, you can have a pint with him. And this is this is what I found about, about Crime Fest. Um, nobody is stand, put themselves on a pedestal, they'll talk to you and, and they'll have a chat. And, and um, it's not like you're talking to, I don't know, a Nobel Prize winner whose who's scientific language and, and credentials are going to be way above your own. Um, you know, it's not that kind of thing. If you're talking to someone like, um, I don't know, Alec Jeffries, who pioneered DNA profiling, that would be quite an interesting experience. Um, but then academics are on a different plane. Crime writers, I, I found, are really approachable. Um, and they'd probably be quite offended if you thought you were overawed in that. And certainly some of them would be. <laughs> yeah, I think some of them would quite like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bless them. I, um... I, I was told by some, somebody mentioned at crime, crime Fest, I think, that crime writers are very collegiate, whereas romantic novelists are always stabbing each other in the back. Now, whether that's <laughs> true or not, I don't know, but it was an interesting <laughs> thought. Yeah, I've heard that, but apparently that's not true. But <laughs> yeah, crime writers are lovely. Uh, absolutely amazing and really giving with their time, I find, which mm. is really nice. I think I might have been overawed a bit by Terry Pratchett because he was such a genius. Um, I didn't want to speak to him when he was a PR officer for four nuclear power stations. Um, but you know, that was my Friends of the Earth hat 
asking why some of these things had cracked and why they were still being run, but uh, that was a long time ago. <laughs> before that's, he was famous, but... Uh, that's pretty cool, though. <laughs> yeah. It's a very popular choice of who people would like to spend a day with, so... Yes, pretty yes. Cool. yes he's, he's an absolute genius. <laughs> what do you like to do in your free time when you're not writing? Reading? Um, I'm with, we've got a Victorian house which we've been doing up and we're having to still do maintenance and repairs and so on. Um, so when it was hot, I was trying to mend windows and my wife was painting it. Um, I wouldn't say I actually enjoy it, it's just one of these necessities, but I do like the countryside. I um, monitor butterflies for butterfly conservation and send in a report every year for what I've seen. Um, but of course, with lockdown, Travel is a bit difficult. One thing we do like doing is staying in old buildings run by the Landmark Trust. Um, they're ancient things from Scottish castles to uh, the last one was a small smuggler's tower on the south coast looking out over the Solent. Um, and they do up these buildings, put in some heating and, and some modern conveniences, although not, um, turn, not turning it into a, a, a premier inn or anything. But what you pay for is the the history, the delightful features of the building which have been preserved or, or um, renovated um, and the, the cost of your sort of hire goes to renovate more buildings so they've got some lovely places around the country which sometime we stayed in with the whole family and had a, a family celebration, wedding anniversary, there was a fort in uh, Pembrokeshire. Um, sometimes we just go off on our own to a, a bathhouse in Warwickshire or, or this little tower in Hampshire so yeah we like doing that sort of thing. That's awesome. <laughs> Maybe checking that out when we finish. <laughs> yeah oh yes, indeed they're, you know they're, they're not cheap but you know the money's going to a good cause and, and actually seeing some of these fantastic buildings being renovated and, and restored is, is, is a privilege. Yeah um, which leads me to one of my favourite questions, if you're able to travel to any period in time, either forwards or backwards, where would you like to go to? Uh, probably San Francisco in 1967 to catch the Jefferson Airplane and the Grateful Dead and the Quicksilver Messenger Service. Um, one of my great disappointments was going to the Bath and West Festival in 1970, where the Jefferson Airplane were um, scheduled to play. Um, and it rained and, and one of the guitarists had been nearly electrocuted in Germany when it was raining on the equipment, so they didn't play. Uh, Led Zeppelin just played on regardless in the pouring rain. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, I think some of these, I was, I was a bit too young. I lived in London um, in, in the 60s and, and uh, early 70s, um, but I was just too young to go to some of these concerts and gigs like UFO and the Pink Floyd and, and some of the early Fairport Convention stuff. So I would like to go back and, and, and see some of these performances and, and things which you just hear about, legendary performances. I did see Hendrix at the Isle of Wight, and that's an, a, a long abiding memory. But um, yeah, go back a few years before that, to London and San Francisco, I think I would like that. Yeah, that's awesome. That's what I'd like to do as well. I was born in 83, so oh. I just missed, like, all the big names were around as I was born. So obviously it was too late by the time 
to see Live Aid, to see Queen, Prince, David Bowie, all of those mm. would be just amazing. I saw David Bowie a few times. I ended up drinking whiskey in his dressing room at one point. He did a, he did a charity gig for Save the Whale for Friends of the Earth. Um, and he agreed to do it just before Ziggy Stardust came out and he really became very famous. So it was, the festival hall was absolutely packed. And for some reason I was with the, the Friends of the Earth people and we ended up in this ro room and somebody said, oh, this was David Bowie's dressing room and there was a bottle of whiskey there. So we helped ourselves. Um, but yeah, I, he was a terrific performer. I seen, saw him several times. Amazing, I'm jealous at all, it's fine. <laughs> I saw his um, performance at Live Aid and you could tell that he loved it. You know, you can tell the, the singers that are doing it because it's what they do and there's the ones that do it because that's what they were meant to do, that's their passion. And he was yeah. one of them. Yeah. yeah. Um, if you were to have a superhero power, what would you choose? Um, I don't know. Maybe to go without sleep without feeling ill. Uh, that would be useful. Um, I could write more then. <laughs> uh, flight would be obviously interesting because I, I quite like um, being above the ground. My wife bought me a, a birthday present, which was a, a flight in a, a tiger moth from Gloucester Airport, um, which was great flying around in that thing. Um, they let me take control as well, which is great. Um, so yeah, maybe flying would be fun, but uh, I think my aspirations are modest. <laughs> <laughs> um, and if you were to be stranded on a desert island, what three things would you want with you? <laughs> well, are we talking practical or are we talking about idyllic? I mean, practical things would be a water purification unit because you can't drink seawater um, and some means of, of producing food if you're talking about being somewhere where you've got a lot of leisure and your needs are met then obviously a word processor and plenty of uh, and a solar charger to keep it going um, that will be fairly good and and you know some books maybe a, a kindle full of, of some of my favorite authors would keep me going and um, there are lots of things i want to reread i want to reread a lot of Terry Pratchett. I want to reread re -read Philip Pullman's Dark Materials um, books, and a lot of, of crime things, which you know certainly benefit rereading. Yeah, I know. I'd love to reread as well. I just don't have time. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's so much good stuff coming out. You know, you can't afford to go back. You don't want to miss things. I know. Yeah, and writing I, books. You know, I mean. I know. We need a hiatus of maybe a month or two every year of just none. No authors bring out any books, so we can all catch up on our TBRs, and then we can go again. Yeah, it's a very big TBR. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I know, I'm, I'm on so many ARC teams, so um, I just read ARCs generally. I don't read anything else. I <laughs> just read the next ARC. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Which is fine. Yeah. I don't mind. I love it, but, yeah, <laughs> it just yeah. feels never-ended. I've read a few, but... Uh... Sometimes you have to put down everything else. I mean, when the, the last Christopher Fowler Bryant May book came out, I had to sort of stop everything and read that because I love his work. I love the, the humour, the characterisation, the plots and, and the bits of old London because um, I keep 
reading stuff. I think, well, yeah, I mean, I grew up in London, but I don't know about that. I'd quite like to go and have a nose around there, you know. So, yeah, I think, uh, I think he's great. Yeah, I do that for Mike Craven. Mm. The, not that his head's big enough already. <laughs> Bless him. Um, so are you working on anything at the moment? And then do you know what you're going to do next? Yeah, I'm working on the sequel um, to Fatal Trade. Um, it involves, again, Mel Cotton and her colleagues in Mexican CID. Um, it involves, let's see, what can I say without giving things away? Um, a couple of dodgy politicians, um, terrorists, um, a very boring man who for some reason is found murdered. Um, yeah, I, I don't want to say an awful lot more about it, but um, it's going to the publishers for their approval, which I hope they'll approve, um, in a couple of weeks. Um, and we're hoping to have it out in Easter, because what there will be in there is, I hope, um, a lot of Easter eggs. Little, little cultural references, like in the Endeavour series, for instance, there was a signpost in the countryside pointing to Midwich, and um, Fred Thursday paraphrases some of the Dirty Harry speech about, you know, did I fire five or six, that kind of thing. Um, and there's lots of other delightful little things in there. There's an interesting piece in the Radio Times about the new series about that. Um, so there'll be quite a few Easter eggs, I hope, and maybe a competition to see who spots them. Mm -hmm. And after that, um, I've also got, uh, that, that one is, is coming up quite nicely. It's, it's um, got a few more weeks work on it, but it's going to them soon. Uh, and the third novel will be uh, about a serial poisoner because poisons are something I've looked at quite a lot. And um, that will uh, intrigue people, I think. It'll be, it'll be a bit more, I suppose, of a mystery of who done it. But um, there'll have to be more than that because you need more than one thread. Police officers work on several things at the time quite often. That, that was one of the things I liked about the, um, the Frost TV series and the books. It wasn't just one case and, and that because of all sorts of other fiddly things. You may be looking at a murder, but there could be robberies and thefts and all sorts of other things, blackmail, you know, um, all of which makes a police officer's life, especially if you've got a rank like inspector, um, a lot to do. It gives you a lot to do. It's not just a question of working on one case and nothing else. And obviously, if there's a big, um, a big murder or something, then you will have a dedicated team doing that. Um, but the, the police station itself will have lots of other things going on at the same time. Yeah. Well, you may be relieved to know that I don't have any more questions for you, unless you think there's anything I haven't asked you that you want to tell us. Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, if any, um, oh, people might like to subscribe to my newsletter, which um, will give details of, of what I'm writing and also some forensic tips, which I've picked up from various places, which might be of interest both to readers and to writers. Um, it's, you can get it through my website, brianpriceauthor.co.uk, um, and just subscribe and I'll send it out. There's a, an issue coming out on Sunday night, which will be my first one, and I'd be very interested to know what people think of it. Um, and then I'll bring it out as and when. That'll be another one before Christmas, I think. And um, Hobeck Books are producing a, a charity anthology around Christmas, and I've got a story coming out in that. So that, um, that should be fun for someone. 
And would you like to just remind everyone where they can find out more about you and where they can get your books from? Yeah, well, you can order Fatal Trade as a paperback from, you know, Waterstones and independent bookshops and so on. It's also available as an ebook on Amazon, which you can pre-order now. And apparently publishers like pre-orders. So if you are intrigued, you can go and do that. Um, just Google or search for Fatal Trade. Um, my author website is uh, brianpriceauthor.co.uk. And if you want uh, tips on science and crime writing, then it's crimewriterscience.co.uk. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Donna.